I, I sure appreciate you being back tonight and uh, for us to be able to really jump in and do in-depth Bible study. This is really what I enjoy doing. And uh, while I was a pastor, we'd have church on Wednesday night, and that's what we would do. we just in-depth Bible study. It took me two and a half years to go through Jeremiah, two and a half years to go through Revelation. Uh, we did the Gospel of John. We did First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, just on and on, the book of Hosea. And uh, I just have a great love for the, for the Word of God, and there's nothing better than to just dig in and let God speak to us. There's nothing better that we can do spiritually. Let me tell you about one of the best spiritual things that I've ever done. My good friend, Dr. Bill Warren, who's a professor at New Orleans Seminary, we all grew up together in Valparaiso. When he accepted Christ, the first thing he did, he read the entire Bible in five days. From Genesis to Revelation, he read the entire Bible in five days. So my New Year's resolution this year was to do the same thing, to read the entire Bible in five days. And so I started my journey. I didn't make it in five days, but I made it in 14. So I read from Genesis through Revelation in 14 days. And I can tell you it's the best spiritual experience of my life. And I have preached all over the Bible, and I've read all over the Bible, and I've preached from this text and that text. But when I started and I read all the way through, this is what happened. When I got to the end of the Gospel of John, I broke down and I wept because I was overwhelmed by God's love for me. And as I thought about what Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin and that he loved me even before I even thought about loving him, and then like I said yesterday, that he knows everything about me and still loves me. I was overwhelmed by the grace of God. And now, having studied 1 John, I started about three months ago just really digging into 1 John again and going through and, and looking at everything with fresh eyes and fresh faith. And I came away from this study, and I hope that we will do the same thing when we're through on Wednesday night, that we will all experience the assurance of our salvation. And that's what 1 John is all about. It's by this you know that you are saved. And John proposes some tests that he gives to help us understand our salvation. And so this is all about assurance. Now yesterday morning, and I don't know how well I did, but I tried to communicate the truth that assurance begins with our personal relationship with Christ. We, we've got to go back to that time and that place in our lives that we trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we look back at that and we see how God brought us to faith in Christ. And by the way, God was after us before we were after him. And, and how God used different events, circumstances, people, places, times, all of those things to help us have that awareness of the need in our lives to come to Christ, and then how we came to Christ, and then the next part of that is what the Lord has been doing in our lives ever since. I was in the office here at the church this morning looking over my notes and thinking about what it means to grow spiritually, and, and the goal of the spiritual life, I said to you yesterday, is not to go to heaven, but it's to become more like Jesus, 
And it made me realize that when you really grow spiritually, what changes the most is our outlook, our attitude. We, we have the mind of Christ. And all of a sudden we see from a whole different perspective what life is all about. And I was thinking about what Paul said to the Philippians. He said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who left heaven, came to earth, gave his life on the cross, raised the third day from the tomb. And it wasn't, Jesus wasn't about himself. He came for us. And the more we grow spiritually, the closer we grow to the Lord, the more we're going to love God and the more we're going to love each other. And the more we're going to display the attitude of Jesus. And so John is, is writing here to a group of Christians who are a little bit confused, a little bit bewildered. Uh, false teachers had come into the church, and as a result of some of their teachings, these believers were saying, how do you really know that you're saved? And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says this, in several places, but he said, these things I have written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. And one of the things I love about John is that he's a straight talker. I, I, I never minded anyone coming to me with constructive criticism who spoke to me in love and, and spoke straight. It always bothered me when somebody went behind my back and said something and then me find out about it. That, does that bother you? And, but for someone who's honest enough and loves me enough to say, hey, Stan, let's talk about this, let's talk about this, and, 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 and confront me with, with my blind spots, confront me with maybe some things that I need to watch in my life or maybe something I said or something that maybe I've done, maybe even not intentionally, but to come and say, hey, let, let's talk. Well, that's John. John, there's really no gray areas with John. He just calls it, calls it like it is, and, and I really like that about John. Now, you have some notes there in front of you. By the way, I told Scott that I wasn't going to pick on him anymore or any less. So uh, anyway, as, as things come to my mind, uh, we might have a, just digress a little bit. And, uh, but anyway, if you look at your outline, you have there our purposes. That's the first thing. And by the way, I've given you all of the outlines for our messages. Uh, and, and I did that on purpose. I did this for a reason. So that you could go home and you could begin to look at 1 John and try to think about these things that we're going to be talking about. And uh, the last night, we're going to look at these one another scriptures that are on the back because we're going to be talking about loving the Lord and loving each other and uh, following, uh, following the Lord in obedience to the command that Jesus gave us to love one another. As a matter of fact, I am really looking forward to the Wednesday night session because it is so vitally important in our churches today that we know what it means to truly love one another and to be truly be the body of Christ. But look at our purposes here. Purpose number one, we're going to deepen our understanding of the theological and historical context of 1 John. When John wrote, he wrote to a definite 
life situation. There was something that was going on that caused him to write this letter. And like we said yesterday, he's writing to believers. He's not writing to non-Christians. But there was a situation that was going on in the church. And John being the elder pastor, the man who had walked with Jesus for a number of years, I call him Pastor John. He saw what was going on in the church. And with a great pastor's heart, he addressed those issues so as to encourage those believers and to help them grow stronger in their relationship with Christ. So we'll talk about that a little bit. The second thing is this, to expose the theological errors addressed by John and to understand the contemporary implications of the same. One of the things that I am learning in studying the Bible is this, there is nothing new under the sun. And the same old philosophies and the same theological errors that John dealt with then are the same ones that we deal with now. Marty Rayburn is a country singer, and I'm a guitar player, and I write country songs. And Marty Rayburn listened to some of the songs that I had written and gave me some constructive criticism. And I appreciated him doing that. He said, Stan, there's nothing new under the sun. You've got to learn how to say the same old thing in a brand new way. And that's true, isn't it? And so when we look at some of these errors, that, uh, the theological errors, we'll say, man, that sounds like exactly what we're hearing today in our society. Now, the third thing is this, to understand and apply the practical implications of living in the light and love of Christ. Now, I'll be honest with you. As, as I studied through 1 John, the hardest thing that I had was trying to figure out how to teach this. Because if you read 1 John, and many of you have, one of you said to me yesterday, I've read first, I've been reading 1 John uh, over and over again for several weeks now, which praise God, that is so wonderful. But you'll notice that, that John kind of repeats himself at different places. And so in trying to outline this and trying to teach it, I said, now, how am I going to teach this without appearing to be redundant and saying the same thing over and over again and maybe just a different way? And so what I, I've come to understand is this. We're not, we're not going to go necessarily verse by verse, even though we're going to cover the entire book of 1 John. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at it topically as he addresses these errors. And when we do, I believe that it will all make sense. And so we will understand and apply the practical implications of living in the light and the love of Christ. Now, I'm a practical person. I, I don't really enjoy studying theories. I want something that's going to help me live. That's what I want. I want some truth that I can hold on to that's going to help me on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I need practical study. And so that's what we are going to focus on. And then the fourth thing, of course, Every time you open God's Word, it's like looking in the mirror, and that is to examine our personal relationship with Christ and to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us toward greater spiritual assurance and maturity. And so as we open God's Word here and we study 1 John, we're, we know that God's going to speak to us, and uh, we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and to lead us into greater truth. 
Now, Scott mentioned this a moment ago. What I would like to do is this. I'm going to teach for a little bit, but at any time, I, I don't, it, do, it doesn't bother me. As a matter of fact, it, it, the, the wonderful thing is this. At any time, you have a question and you say, hey, Stan, well, what about this? Let's talk about it. And if I don't know the answer, Scott does. <laughs> All right? And, and I'll try not to make something up. How's that? But uh, we'll just honestly talk about things, but, but I'll teach for a little while. And, and before we end, I will allow enough time for us to have some discussion and talk back and forth to each other. And then we're going to eat ice cream. How's that? So it's going to get sweeter as we go. And so anyway, uh, if you'll notice the outline of the study of 1 John, the introduction is chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We covered that yesterday as John talked about his personal encounter with Christ and, and how he came to understand Jesus as the word of life. And then in chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 29, the theological theme is God is light. And John talks about what it means to live in the light. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So everything that he deals with in those first chapter, chapter five, starting there and going through the end of chapter two deals with what it means to live in the light of Christ. Then starting at, at chapter 3 and cha verse 1 and going through chapter 4, verse 20, he talks about God is love. And this is the theology. God is light. God is love. And he talks about what it means to be living in the love of God. Now, he talks about a lot of things there in the same vein that he talks about uh, in the first two chapters. But there's a little bit of different emphasis there, a slightly different emphasis but anyway, that's the theology. God is light, God is love. And then he concludes with God is life. And he who has the son of God has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. I'm writing these things so that you can be sure of your relationship with Christ. And so, and then the conclusion is 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 19, as John wraps this up. And so that gives you a little bit of an overview of where we're going in our study. And so as we look at this, we will understand some other things. Now, how are we going to approach this study? We're going to talk about the assurance of salvation, and we're going to apply four tests that will help us understand our assurance. You'll want to write these things down. They're, I don't believe they're on your outline, and I need to give these to you. And these four things are this, assurance of salvation. First, there is the theological test, the theological test. And that is what we believe about Jesus. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, made this statement. He said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. If you have a high and noble faith in God, then your life is going to reflect that high and noble faith that you have in God. But if you make God less than who he is, then your life is going to take on the characteristics of that understanding. And so John gives us a theological test. 
And that will be the session that we will do tonight, the test of theology. So we're going to talk about what we believe about Jesus. The next test is a moral test. And the moral test relates to God is light. And because God is light, how are we supposed to live? John says we're to be holy even as he is holy. And we're going to talk about with the moral test how we deal with sin and temptation in our lives. So we're going to deal with that. And we're going to talk about habitual sin. We're going to talk about confessing our sin. How many of you know 1 John 1, 9 by heart? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're going to talk about, uh, about the sin problem that we have in our lives and, and how that applies. And then the next test is the social test. And the social test is based on how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is the new commandment. The old commandment, yet the new commandment. And that old commandment and yet new commandment is that we love one another. And what we're going to talk about is this, how we love each other, how we're to express the love of Christ in our relationships and, and how that love is to be expressed within the context of the body of Christ, the church. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I might be speaking out of school, but I'm going to tell you something. Some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life been in church. Is that true? Man. I, I'm telling you, y'all want to see the scars on my back? <laughs> but, you know, to, to, to really express our love for one another is, John says, this is a test. Here, here's a test. You know, you say you love God and you treat your brother with contempt. You say you love God and yet you hate your brother. He says, and this is what I love about John. He doesn't mince, mince any words. You know what he says? You're a liar, <laughs> and the truth is not in you. So we'll apply the moral test, and then, of course, the test of obedience. And the test of obedience is doing what God asks us to do. So you have those four tests, the theological test, the moral test, the social test, and the test of obedience. So let's turn the page and go to session one, and let's look at the theological test. And uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we dealt with them yesterday as John talked about Jesus as a real man living in a real world and his real encounter with the real Jesus who is truly flesh and blood and yet divine, fully God and fully man, and how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So here's the key truth. What we believe concerning the person and redemptive work of Christ is the most important aspect of our lives. If one is wrong about Jesus, he will be wrong in life. And that is so true. Now, when I was thinking this through and, and thinking about it and sharing with you, I thought about the different cults that are out there and, and the conversations through the years I've had with different ones who said things like this. Well, we believe, that we believe in Jesus, but we also have a whole nother book over here and we have a whole nother prophet over here. And so, yeah, you, you need to trust Jesus, but you also need to trust this. Well, 
You got to apply the test. How, how are you saved? It's only one way to go to heaven, isn't it? And that's through faith in Jesus. And I'm telling you, Jesus is enough. You don't add anything to it. We'll talk about that in a moment. So what you believe about Jesus. So let's talk about these false teachers that had invaded the church. I believe that if, when we set the stage here, that you'll see why John says some of the things that he says and the emphasis that he says there. And by the way, this is what I'd like to do. This is your homework assignment, okay? If you've not read through 1 John, you need to do that, okay? My sister this morning got up and read through 1 John, and I was so proud that she did that. As a matter of fact, our sister is the best Weatherford, okay? And if, if you get to know her, you will say, now that's the best Weatherford right there. And uh, she had three brothers, and I tell you what, our sister could whip all three of us at one time. And uh, so she knows how to hold her ground. But anyway, she read 1 John, so I want you to read 1 John. Now, what about these false teachers that invaded the church? Well, let's look at one passage here. Let's go to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and, and look at what John says there. You say, well, this is an odd place to start the study of the Gospel of John, but let's start there, and, and then we can go from there and, and look a little further. In chapter 4, verse 1, John said, Beloved, don't you love the way he addressed his church? Beloved, the ones I love. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, then and now. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You're from God, little children. You've overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He is not from God, does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So these false teachers were coming in and they were wrong about Jesus. Now, what was the nature of these people? The first thing is this. They appeared to be genuine believers. They knew the right words. They knew the right phrases. They would even say things like this. Oh, yeah, we believe that Jesus is the Savior. But all the words that they used, they, even though they were familiar, had a totally different meaning. It is hard to distinguish truth from error when familiar terms are used with a twisted meaning. And that's what these people were doing. They appeared to be faithful members of the church. Now, John would say, now, you also realize this. They were with us, and then they left us. And that gave evidence that they were really not with us at all. So these false teachers had come into the church. They were preaching their false doctrine 
these believers had heard it and now they are all confused. Do, am I really saved? Is the gospel enough? The fact that I've trusted Jesus, is this enough to give me the gift of eternal life? Or, or do I need another Jesus? What, what's the deal here? And John writes to them and says, no, it's Christ alone. And so they had familiar terms. Do you realize that we can know right theology or we can know familiar terms and not know Christ? What do you think? Yeah, we can know the language. We can know the lingo. But our hearts are not his. Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, you know, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. He said, many is going to be called on that day, but few are going to be chosen. And you know, we have to examine ourselves, don't we? To think about, do we really know Christ? What do we truly believe about him? I'm afraid. This, this thing I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that we have a generation of folks who really don't know what they believe. And it's, it's wrecking our influence spiritually. Do y'all agree with me or am I just talking out of school? Yeah. And, and so, listen, y'all, it is so important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. You've got to have that firm foundation if you're going to stand. Now, these, uh, these appear to be genuine, but they were not. You know, Jesus warned us about this. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, for, for instance. Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that we needed to be aware, uh, aware of this very thing here. Matthew 7, uh, verse 15 and following. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, I'll give you time to turn, okay? Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Boy, they look good, don't they? They look genuine, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. And every rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruit. That chapter begins with Jesus said, don't be a hypocrite and exercise hypocritical judgment. Don't try to get the log out of your brother's eye or out of the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a log in yours. He said, don't be involved in hypocritical judgment. And, but then he says, you better be discerning. And there's a difference between being judgmental and being discerning. You will know them by their fruit. John is going to expose the fruit of these people. So these people claim to be enlightened. They had a special relationship with God. We've got some knowledge that you don't have. And as a result of that, they felt themselves to be the enlightened ones. 
And so what was the error of these false teachers? Let's move forward. The first thing is this. They denied the reality of the incarnation. They said Jesus really wasn't a man. He just appeared to be a man. Now, why did they believe that? It's a philosophy that is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, the, the belief is this. All flesh is evil, and what is good is the spirit. So, Jesus could not have been the perfect sinless son of God and have a fleshly body because that fleshy body would have been evil. So what they did, they set up a series of lesser gods, the eternal God, the perfect God. Uh, they set up a series of lesser gods and then they finally got down to a God that could possibly have been Christ. <laughs> and so they were denying the reality of the incarnation that Christ was really a human being, that he was fully God and fully man. You see, most theological errors occur with one of two things. Either we exalt the deity of Christ to the neglect of the humanity of Christ, or we exalt the humanity of Christ to the neglect of the deity of Christ. How do you explain the incarnation? I don't know how to explain it. The only thing I know is this, that God came in the person of Jesus Christ. He was a real man. He lived in a real world. He faced the same realities that we face. He was tempted in every point, even as we're tempted. He was thirsty. He was hungry. There might have been times when he had a bad cold. He was a man, fully man, but he was more than a man. He was God himself. And God identified with us in Christ. Now, baptism. What happens when we're baptized? When Jesus was baptized, he said, John said to him, I have no need to baptize you. Why? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And he said, I have no need to baptize you. Jesus said, let it be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. What in the world does that mean? Other than this is what the Father wants me to do. This is His will. But when He was baptized, you know what He did? He identified with us. He identified with us that He came to save. He said, I am here for you. Well, what happens when we're baptized? We get wet, don't we? We go under the water. And we get wet. I heard about a Texan that went in the baptismal pool and he realized he had his billfold in his back pocket. And he held it up and everything went under but his wallet. <laughs> Think I know a lot of Christians like that, don't you? Well, what happened when we were baptized? This is what happened. Jesus identified with us and we're identifying with him. He's saying, I came for you. And you know what we're saying? And I'm with you. We're together. And we come up to walk in newness of life that is in fellowship with Christ. And so when we look at this, they deny the reality of the incarnation. They had some catchwords that they use. You know, all the heretics have catchwords. Familiar words, like one of those words was gnosis. The Greek word for knowledge. G-N-O-S-I-S. The word gnosis. They said, we have a special knowledge 
that God has given to us. And the only way you can get this special knowledge is to be initiated like we are. You've got to have an anointing from God. And when you get this anointing, then you're going to have this special knowledge and you're going to be so spiritual that you can't associate with those who are not as spiritual as you are. That incredible? We don't hear that today, do we? They said we have a charisma, an anointing. We have the sperma, the seed of God in us. And so we've got it. And I'm sorry, but you don't. Okay? Now, does that make sense? Now, how does that affect the fellowship of the church? What happens when folks have that attitude? Are they going to get along with each other? <laughs> going to be bad news, isn't it? Do you see what's happening in this fellowship? Do you understand now why John would talk so much about the importance of loving each other and the importance of abiding in Christ and growing in that relationship with Christ? You see, the closer you get to the Lord the more you're going to love each other. It's the way it is. It's kind of like Vicki and I have been married. We've been married 37 years this year. And she's the most patient and understanding woman I have ever been around in my life. She has put up with a lot of stuff from me through 37 years. Now, now the rest of you guys here, you quit looking at me like you're innocent. Because your wife will say the same thing. But you know, this is the thing. We've been married 37 years, and I'm still learning things about her. And you know what? When we got married, I thought I loved her. And I did. I loved her. I want to tell you all something. I love her more now than I did then. You know why? Because we've been in relationship with each other. You know what? I accepted Jesus when I was seven. But I want you to know I love Jesus now more than I did when I was seven. As a matter of fact, I'm coming to the point in my life for me to realize it's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. I want to tell you something. The most important thing that happened to me happened to me five years ago when I went through the most horrendous thing I've ever been through in my life. On a Saturday morning, I was flat on my face in my bedroom saying, God, I don't think I can make it another day. And God began to speak to my heart. He says, Stan Weatherford, what are you going to do? You're going to lay here on the floor and waller in this, or are you going to get up and face it and honor me and do the next right thing that honors me? I had a decision to make. And I said to the Lord, God, if you'll help me get up, I will do the next right thing that honors you. And God, I will follow your leadership out of this mess that I've created. Most important thing happened in my life that day. Stan Weatherford died. That's what happened. And I realized that it's all about Jesus.
And it is. And I, I want you to know that my prayer in coming here was that Christ will be exalted because it's all about Jesus. And it is. It's all about Him. So these false teachers had some catchwords that they used, but they denied the reality of the incarnation. They were wrong about Jesus, which led to these teachings. Now, these are the teachings of the false prophets, and I don't know if you have this on your outline. Yeah, you just have the teachings here. Now, those verses that you have outside the lines there about the teachings, verses uh, chapter 1, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10 to 4, 9, and 9, and verse 26, and then chapter 4, verse 20. All of these are sayings that John says, if we say, if someone says, I have fellowship with him, and yet walks in darkness. If someone says, I'm in right relationship with God, and yet is not obedient to God's command, they're lying. The truth is not in them. And, and so based on those if someone says statements that you'll find there, these are the teachings of the false prophets. Now listen to this. Um, see if you have heard this before. Teaching number one. One can live a sinful lifestyle and continue to be in right relationship with God. Y'all hear that? One can live a sinful lifestyle and continue to be in right relationship with God. Do y'all know what's happening in our society today? You know what we're doing? We're justifying the sin instead of the sinner. We're declaring that the sin is right with God instead of the person. Did you know that John was, ba was battling that same philosophy in his day? Here's the second one. One can love, live above sin in which sin no longer has any influence. In other words, you can reach a state of sinless perfection and sin no longer has any influence in your life. Now, you know, listen, y'all. I, I heard this just the other day. I had a pastor from another denomination who told me, he said, brother, I haven't committed a sin in 23 years. <laughs> and he was so proud of it. <laughs> hey, literally, I'm telling you, he's serious. I haven't committed a sin in 23 years. I said, man, you know what? I didn't believe him. And I started to say, I don't guess pride's a sin, is it? Can we reach a state of sinless perfection? Mm -mm. John talked about that a little bit, but that's what they're saying. So, you know, if I'm living above sin and sin doesn't have any influence in my life, you know what I can do? I can sin all I want to. It's not going to have any bearing on me because it's not going to touch me. What about this one? Sin is dictated by society, not by God. They were saying, you know, in, in verse 10, if you say you've not sinned, you make God a liar. Because God says that all have sinned. So sin is not really sin. It's, it's just dictated by society. It's what society has dictated that is right and wrong, and that changes. And so that's it. This one, 
The flesh is evil, but the spirit is good. So I can do whatever I want to with this fleshly body and has no bearing whatsoever on my spirit. So I can engage in gross immorality or on the other hand, I can practice uh, extreme asceticism. I can deny this body, this body of flesh because my spirit is imprisoned in this body and, and what I need to do is let that spirit be set free so this old body doesn't matter anyway, so I might as well do whatever I want to. That was what was being taught. Number five, one does not have to obey God to be in right relationship with God. So obedience doesn't matter. If you're enlightened, you've got it. You're instantaneously spiritually mature as soon as it hits you. Is there any such thing as instantaneous spiritual maturity? Don't think so. The enlightened ones are spiritually superior. Spiritually superior. I'm going to make a statement here. Don't you think about it. I want you to react to it in a little bit, but I want to make this statement. You think about it. You write it down. We cannot truly love those we believe are of inferior status. We cannot truly love those we believe are of inferior status. We were in Cuba, and this guy that was my partner, and I don't know how I got assigned to him. God's got a sense of humor is all I can say. But my, this guy is my partner, one of the most arrogant people I've ever been around in my life. I mean, it was just hard. And, and he was sharing the gospel to notch his gun. You know, he was, I, I, how many folks can I, you know, he is notching his gospel gun, how many people, you know, he wasn't really caring about people, but he was, he was so arrogant. And so I'm with him, and we're walking the nasty, dirty streets of El Cobre, Cuba, and we go up this lane, and we go to this lady's house, and it's my turn to share. And I go into this house, and it's dirt floors. She, she actually has has a path going through her house and she's, that she has, she, she's dug a path and the furniture is set up on a dirt ledge on each side of the path going in. So we go into her house and we sit down and I begin to look at the pictures on the wall of her children. And I told her through my translator, I said, thank you for inviting us into your beautiful home. I know how ladies feel about their home. Your home is an extension of you, isn't it? Your things, your place is so important. And I said to her, thank you for inviting us into your beautiful home. Who are these children? And a big old smile came on her face and she started talking about her children, about her grandchildren. One of her daughters had been killed in an accident and she had her picture there. She told me all about that, and we sat there, and I shared the gospel with her, and she prayed to receive Christ. It was a wonderful experience in a beautiful place. When I got out on the street, the guy who was with me said this, how in the world could you say that was a beautiful place? 
I said, I could say that because that's her home. And she's important to Jesus. And guess what? On the best day of my life, when I get it all right, I am still a sinner saved by the grace of God. And God's grace knows no limit. And I'm telling you, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Jesus said, whosoever will may come. And you know, that person that's down and out and in the gutter needs Christ. And we love people. And we meet people where they are with the gospel. And if we have an air of spiritual superiority about us, we are sinning against God. John would say it this way. You're lying, and the truth is not in you. And we need to understand that. But these false teachers, they just felt themselves to be totally superior. And as a result of that, they were just tearing the church apart. So how do you overcome false teaching? How are we doing on time, by the way? I got all night. Got all night? Okay, I do too. I'll let you out by 12. Y'all hang with me and, you know, and, and uh, they got the ice cream in the freezer, I suppose, so we're good. Now, how do you overcome false teaching? The first thing you do is you apply the spiritual test. What is being said about Jesus? What is being said about Jesus? John said, every spirit that denies that Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. We need to know what we believe about Jesus. We also need to know what we believe about our salvation. How, how, how are we saved? How are we saved? Come on. By faith. We trust Jesus. Now, Listen, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So I want you to turn to Colossians. And, and Paul was dealing with some false teachers in Colossae. And, and they had some false understanding about uh, Jesus. So the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Y'all remember that. When you, when you study your Bible, the best commentary is not what John Maxwell has written. It, it, it is not what... MacArthur has written, it's not what Warren Wiersbe has written, the best commentary is Scripture. I always go Scripture first. I'm going to tell you all how I study. I don't pick up a commentary until I have picked up my Greek New Testament and I've translated the passage that I'm going to deal with in the New Testament and I've written down everything that I felt like God has said to me as I've studied. And then, only after I do that, do I even pick up a commentary and start reading it? Because I want to see if God said to me the same thing he said to someone else. And so that's how I study. But the best commentary on Scripture, Scripture. So listen to what Paul said about Jesus to the Colossians and what he's saying to us. Chapter 2, verse 6. He says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord... So walk in him, that is, live in relationship with him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed 
and overflowing with gratitude. Now listen to what he says here. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So he says, now listen, better know what you believe. Don't let somebody pull you in with some philosophy or some elementary teaching, he says. But notice what he says, verse 9. For in him, Jesus, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's the incarnation, isn't it? The fullness of God was resident in Jesus. And look at this, verse 10. In him you have been made complete. Literally, full. In him you've been made full. Now what does that mean? If you're full, what does that mean? You don't have room for anything else, do you? He's saying Christ is sufficient. So he says, in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, you've been made complete, full. And he's the head over all rule and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, look what God did. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions and having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authority, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as judge. And he, and he goes on, and, and, and finally he says, listen, you, you just stay with Jesus. So how do you combat false teachers? You stay with Jesus. You stay with the gospel. When somebody comes along and they want to add something to the gospel, you automatically know this is wrong. I don't need this. My son used to, <laughs> he used to laugh at me because there was these folks that would come around on Saturdays and knock on the door and they had a little magazine they wanted to give to me. And it would aggravate Vicky and it aggravate Aaron because I'd invite them to come on in. Y'all come on in. We start talking. One day, this same, a same group like this came to my father's house, to Poe Weatherford's house, on a Sunday afternoon. She came in and she sat down and she said, Mr. Weatherford, did you know Mr. Weather, did you know that Adam is in hell? And Daddy said, well, I hate to hear that, but I don't know a thing in the world I can do about it. <laughs> you wonder where Scott gets his stuff? 
The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But I sit down and I talk to these folks. And I had some guys ride bicycles one time, came up to my house. And I invited them in first thing I did. And I wasn't even thinking. I offered them a Coke. I wasn't, that wasn't very nice. And I wasn't even thinking about it. But I sat down with those two guys and I said, listen. Oh, yeah, we believe that Jesus is a Savior. I said, okay. Then why do you need this other guy? If you believe that, why do you need this? And they couldn't answer that question. And I said, guys, I don't need your other book. I don't need this other guy because I have the one who is. And his name is Jesus. And guess what? He'll give you the gift of eternal life if you'll trust him. And leave this hula baloo alone. <laughs> What we believe about Jesus. There's the spiritual test. Then the next one that we have here is the fellowship test. They went out from us. They were with us, but then they ended up going out from us. They appeared to be here. They started out here, but guess what? It was soon evident that they were not of us. Now, why would he say that? These folks came in and they were disrupting the fellowship of the church. They were causing problems in the church. They were disrupting the fellowship of the church. They had all the answers. They were the only ones who were right. They were there, then they left. I don't know about you, but I'm just kind of the opinion that the person who continues to disrupt the fellowship of the church probably does not know Jesus. What do you think? You know what? It's all right if you talk. I mean, what do you think? You know, the person who's always stirring up strife or dissension or the group that's always doing that, I'm telling you, there is a deep-seated spiritual problem there. And that's what was happening in this fellowship. And there is the test of fellowship. Guys, I want to tell you all something. I don't like conflict. I don't. I don't like conflict. I don't go around trying to pick fight. I, I like to get along. You know, and I like to see folks get along with each other. Now, I, I, I want to please the Lord. I, I don't want, I, you know, you, you can be a people pleaser, but I want to be a God pleaser. And sometimes conflict is unavoidable and you have to deal with it, but you got to deal with it in a godly way. <laughs> My wife used to get on to me at baseball games. Yeah. <laughs> I watched Aaron play football and I was fine. But that guy behind the plate... But I had a spiritual way of dealing with rowdy friends or fans or the other opposing team. You know what I'd say? If you don't shut your mouth, I'm going to whip you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Well, there's some folks in the church that need to be whipped in Jesus' name, right? I don't go around looking for a conflict, and I don't go looking for a fight, but I want to tell you something. The person who goes around stirring up dissension in the church has a spiritual problem. There is something wrong with that relationship with God, and that's a spiritual test. There is the test of fellowship. Then there is the test of obedience. And uh, the test of obedience is this. Does my lifestyle reflect Christ's lordship? Yesterday, I made this statement. Some of you wrote this down. I said, you know, Jesus, the first thing Jesus does is change our hearts. He changes our hearts. And when he changes our hearts, he changes our minds. And when he changes our minds, he changes our desires. And when he changes our desires, our purpose in life is what he wants. And there's a test of obedience. And, 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 and I, let me say this, and, and the greatest love that I can say this in, we in this study have to examine our personal walk with Christ. If we don't do that, we're wasting our time going through this. I'm having to examine my life. You're having to examine yours. We're having to ask ourselves, do I really know Jesus? Now, this is the question. Does your lifestyle reflect the reality of your relationship with Christ? Do others see Christ in you? Are you doing what God is, ask, is asking you to do? Are you obeying Him? Are you walking in fellowship with Him? You see, the Christian life is a step of faith followed by a walk of obedience. And our lifestyle has, must reflect our relationship with Christ. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. The, the, the emphasis here, there's something wrong. But if you're a child of God, you know what God's going to do? The Holy Spirit is going to bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring you under conviction. Did you realize that the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is evidence that you are a child of God? Because he wants you to come to faith. He wants you to renew your relationship with him. Because we, we must live for Christ. I said yesterday, you remember what I said yesterday? I said, you need to share your testimony everywhere you go. Y'all remember that? You need to share your testimony everywhere you go. You're in line at the grocery store. Share your testimony. You're at the doctor's office, sitting at the, waiting, share your testimony. Girls in the office this morning said, you know, when you said that, I thought, man, I'm supposed to be talking about Jesus in the line. And then you said this, and if necessary, use words. Your powerful witness is your life and the way you walk with Jesus every day. That's the power here. And the person who says, I know the Lord and their lifestyle denies that reality. You know what John says? He's a liar. And the truth is not in him. You have to apply the test. And then the abiding test. The abiding test. And that is how we live for Christ every day. And, and this is the thing. 
I want to sum up spiritual maturity in three words. What does it mean to be a mature Christian? Three words. Faith, holiness, and love. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. You trust the Lord. You obey the Lord by living a life that is holy to Him. And you display the love of Christ everywhere you go. And I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to get my mind wrapped around what, what does it mean to be a mature Christian? I can tell you this. The more you grow in Christ, the more you're going to die to yourself. And the more you grow in Christ, the more your life is going to take on the character of Christ. And the more you take on the character of Christ, the more the love of Christ is going to be displayed in your life in all your relationships. I had the privilege of having a hunting partner. Scott was talking about that I love to, to hunt. When I met my hunting partner, he turned 80 years old. Mr. Edwin Vaughn. He became my hunting partner. He killed his last deer when he was 93. I kept him in the woods for 13 years. I had my four-wheeler fixed where he could ride on the back of it and not be in danger. And we rode up through that Mississippi Delta together and hunted on the Mississippi River. And every time, every time I went, he went. Every time I cranked my truck up or I was going, I'd call him. I said, Mr. Edward, you ready to go to the river? He said, give me five minutes. He was ready. He had a philosophy. If somebody wants to buy your lunch, let them. <laughs> and I don't know how many times I bought his lunch. And I wouldn't take anything for it. But he taught me more about walking with Jesus than any seminary professor, any pastor, anybody I've ever been around. Because Mr. Edwin Vaughn taught me to love the Lord and to love others. I'm going to tell you something. You take a 93-year-old man hunting, it's a big responsibility. The last time we went hunting together, I knew it was the last time. I called his daughter and said, hey, I know your daddy's been falling and all, but if I, go to the, if I go to the hunting camp and he finds out I go over there and I don't take him, it's going to break his old heart. Now, I'm calling you to let you know so you can talk about it. And if you say it's okay for him to go, then I'm going to come get him. But if you say it's not okay, we've not had this conversation. And remember, loose lips sink ships. Okay. She called me back on, that was Monday, she called me back on Wednesday and said, okay, Daddy can go. So we rode together. And as I rode along, I realized this was our last trip. 
There was a lump in my throat that I could not swallow. And I couldn't hardly see to drive because I was fighting the tears because I knew it was our last trip. One day, Mr. Edwin and I came off the levee at the Mississippi River together. And I've never seen this before and I'll probably never see it again. Up on top of the levee, we looked out across there and the way the sun was shining on the cottonwood trees made everything look gold. The sky was gold, the trees were gold, everything. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he said, God's giving us a glimpse of heaven. And he said this, Brother Stan, I want you to know I love you. And I said, Mr. Edwin, I love you too. And Mr. Edwin, God used in my life to help me realize the most important thing in life is loving God and loving each other. And real spiritual maturity is not about how many scriptures you memorize, how many small groups you attend, how much you do this and how much you do that. It is not legalism. Real spiritual maturity is loving God and loving each other. And when that's there, the rest of it is just commentary. You've got to apply these tests. And that test is abiding in Christ and living in a love relationship with Him and true spiritual maturity is summed up in faith and holiness and love. Does our lifestyle communicate that we know Jesus? So, how do you overcome false teaching? You apply the spiritual test, the fellowship test, the obedience test, and the abiding test, and then you rely on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Parallels in the Gospel of John to the first John because John wrote both of them. And in the Gospel, he said the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He's going to lead you into all the truth. He said the Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus. Jesus said he's going to make me real. He says the Holy Spirit will lead one into the truth about Christ. He's going to glorify Christ. And the Holy Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we're God's children. And, and, and John will say over here in chapter 5, verse 7 and following, he says, you know, you don't have any need for anybody to teach you because the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. Well, we need each other to help each other. But he says the Holy Spirit's going to be your teacher. And I've seen that over and over again. So you rely on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's some parting thoughts, and then we're just going to have some time here to talk a little bit. But some parting thoughts here about being overcomers. Now, I sat at my desk after I had gone through and written these notes, and I was trying to think about it. And I was trying to think about you and, and asking God to help me to communicate as effectively as I could His truth. Because I, I'm not here. It is not my purpose to try to... Uh, be impressive. It is not my purpose to try to do anything except help us apply God's Word to our lives. And, and so 
here's the things that I thought about. These, this is what I want to talk to you about. How to be an overcomer. Now, overcome. Now, listen how you overcome. You hold on to Jesus. You just put your feet down and you just plant your life on Christ. He's the founder. You just say, this settles it. Had a girl that kept coming down, rededicating her life. And she had done this before with another pastor. And finally, she came down And I said, do you really know Jesus? She says, I, I've accepted Christ. I said, you ever planted a garden? You ever planted a bush? You ever planted seed in the ground? Yeah. I said, Jill, if I plant a seed in the ground and every day I go and dig it up to see if it's growing, will it ever grow? She said, no. I then said, make a solid commitment to Christ and let's quit digging this up. If you know him now, let's grow. And listen, I'm going to tell you something. You will never grow spiritually until you say, I know in whom I believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed until that day, and you plant your feet firmly in Christ, and you hold on to Jesus. What you got to do. So you hold on to Christ. What God said is true. Then hold fast to God's promise. God's promise is this. He who believes in the Son of God has the life. He who does not believe does not have the life because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And what God says is this, that I so loved you that I gave my only Son that if you will believe in him, you'll not perish but have everlasting life. I'm banking my life on God's promise that if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me, that God demonstrated his own love toward me, and while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I'm banking my life that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've got to nail it down. Then you live for Christ with confident hope. And then you love God and you obey his commandments. And my family, if you are doing these things, it is evident in your life that you know Christ. That's the theological test. 